Hello and welcome to HR Zone's All Hands on Tech podcast. I'm Becky Norman, the editor of HR Zone, and for this episode, we're going to be focusing on the shift to remote working during the coronavirus outbreak and how this may impact the way we work in the future. Joining our host, Dr. Max Bloomberg, is Blair Palmer, CEO of That People Thing. Now, as a digital nomad, Blair's had some really interesting working experiences, including homeschooling her daughter, which she's been doing for many years now. So she's got a lot of great advice on how to work from home with children. She also offers some wise words on the key ingredients required to make remote working a success, with trust and meaningful work being critical here. If you like what you hear from Max and Blair today, please do like and share across your networks to help us reach more people. And remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode goes live. Thanks, everyone. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of HR Zone's All Hands on Tech podcast. I'm Max Bloomberg, and today I'll be speaking with Blair Palmer, a leadership coach, author and conference speaker. As CEO of That People Thing, Blair works with senior executives to help them rethink how to lead in these fast, challenging and changing times. Blair also home educates her 12-year-old daughter. In 2018, she sold her house, bought an RV and became a digital nomad, traveling around Europe with her daughter and their two dogs for seven months to understand remote working, experiment with world schooling and rethink our relationship with both work and education. A very warm welcome to you, Blair. Hi. Thanks for having me, Max. So, thanks so much for coming along. So, Blair, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about the person behind Blair Palmer, <laughs> where you are. I know you've had a, an amazing career, which we were chatting about earlier, but share with our listeners. Yeah, so my first career uh, was as a journalist. I was a BBC journalist. I worked for BBC Radio 4 uh, back in the 90s, and I was a producer on the Today programme and Women's Hour, so two of the three flagship shows um, on Radio for the only show I didn't do was The Archers uh, of the top three. Um, and that was a fantastic start for me, but it wasn't exactly what I was expecting. I thought it was going to be like, you know, the things I'd seen on the in the movies about working in the media. And it really wasn't. It was a very high pressure, very long hours environment, not a particularly positive cultural environment. Mm. Um, I remember my, my editor uh, posting a, a post-it onto my back. He stuck the post-it to my back um, and told me not to remove it until I'd found a guest for the next day's show. Um, and the post-it said, I am Satan's mistress. So that's... No! Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't even surprised when it happened. It was a pretty normal uh, thing in that environment. So um, in the late 90s, I found out about the emerging profession of coaching and decided I think I'd rather do that. And uh, by 2000, I was running my own coaching business. So that's 20 years now. Um, and I've become really focused on leadership and particularly the kind of leadership that we need today and in future. And, and so I coach leaders, I work with senior teams and I speak, I'm a conference keynote speaker. I speak about that as well. And that's really my, my professional life. Um, behind the scenes of that, we live in a beautiful part of Somerset with um, a lot of animals 
20 chickens, some rabbits, dogs, and a hamster. So it's it's all go here. <laughs> that, that must make moving quite interesting. <laughs> yes. Well, as we were saying earlier on, we are about to, to move house. And yeah, <laughs> the logistics around moving the chickens is very, very complicated, far more complicated than moving ourselves. I'm sure it is. So for the benefit of listeners, can you give us a, a potted uh, overview of what we'll be chatting about today? Yeah, so, I mean, everyone is now part of this mass home working. Not everyone, actually, uh, but the vast majority of people are part of this mass home working um, experiment, really, that we're all undergoing right now. We're all guinea pigs in this massive experiment. And we're also, a lot of us, uh, not me, actually, uh, part of an experiment uh, to home educate as well. So our children are home and um, they're normally at school. And uh, yeah, we're trying to figure out not only how to help our kids to learn at home, but also how to work at home, how to do those things simultaneously, whilst at the time of recording, not being allowed out of the house, pretty much. And, and you know, in terms of this bigger picture, this thing that I'm fascinated by about what is the future of leadership? What is the future of work? Are we working in a way today that is really conducive with the kind of qualities that we need to bring to our work, the creativity and the innovation and the human connection and the, the agility and all of that. We're still working in a primarily um, industrial age model. This is a really interesting time, really interesting. And it'll be fascinating, I think, to see what the longer term results are of what we're experiencing now. Yes. I mean, a, you know, a lot of people are saying that we're not going to ever go backwards. In other words, we're not going to go back to where we used to be. Um, do, do you think that's true? Well, you know, we say that after every recession as well. We say, oh, we'll never, you know, we need to rethink the whole capitalist model and we need to have a capitalism that doesn't result in these recessions. And then, you know, a couple of years down the line, everything's pretty much the same. So whether it will be a, a radical transformation immediately, I don't know. But I think what it will do, it will certainly mean that many companies who've been saying, well, we just can't, we just can't do it. We, we can't set people up at home. The technology, the firewalls, all the, you know, the, the, the security risk, all of that, we just can't do it. Actually, they have done it and they've done it really fast. It might, be, it might not be optimal. Um, and certainly um, working from home under these conditions is not optimal. Uh, but some of the excuses will definitely disappear. And I think people will realize that there are huge advantages and huge productivity advantages to doing it this way. So hopefully there will be a move towards more of this remote or flexible working and an understanding that work is part of life and that work needs to flex around people's lives. It, it's no longer okay for us to sacrifice everything else in our lives for our work. Well, you've certainly chosen an unusual lifestyle uh, compared to, to most people who are leadership coaches anyway. Um, and you're a digital nomad. Now, this is a term which is coming up and a lot of people don't know that it is a thing. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what is digital nomad and, and 
we expect to see more of it. Oh, for sure. And and again, particularly after this, I think um, people will, will feel that they can be more free in terms of where they're working. It doesn't have to be just at home. So um, as you mentioned in your introduction, I home educate my daughter. Um, I took her out of school when she was about nine. And we've been doing this for about three years. And one of the things that I realized when we started that was, Firstly, it's very difficult to teach your child. Uh, they don't like it. Um, school isn't home and you're not the teacher and um, you, you, can't, you can't really recreate school at home and sort of why would you want to? You've got a lot more choices. So it occurred to me that we could learn without being in the house. Um, home education being something of a misnomer, it mostly doesn't happen at home. So we could learn not being in the house. I didn't have to be based in any particular location. If I'm going to fly to Basel to work with a client out there, it doesn't matter if I start at Heathrow. I could start at Venice Airport or, you know, Munich Airport. It makes no difference. So I'm actually a, um, location independent is what it's called. Um, and my daughter and I both wanted to get school, get our routine actually out of our system. So we sold the house and we went traveling, um, but it wasn't a holiday. So the whole time we were traveling for about seven months, the whole time I was working um, from wherever we were, um, we traveled by RV from place to place. And I, we always stayed in campsites where we could get decent Wi-Fi. Um, and then when we arrived in a country for a period of time, then we would stay in an Airbnb. And again, um, high quality Wi-Fi was a sort of um, deal maker or breaker with those things. So uh, yeah, we gave it a try. And, and I learned a lot about the kind of location independent working. Um, there's very little that's complicated about it if you're traveling anyway. And if you've got someone to do your, your um, logistics, I have a PA who does all my flights and things. So that was easy. The only difficulty is Wi-Fi strength. You know, if, if you don't have decent Wi-Fi, you can't operate. And funnily enough, it was in the UK that that was the most difficult. We were we were in York um, and I had a few speeches up there and we decided to base ourselves up there for a few weeks. And where we were living didn't have any Wi-Fi and hardly any um, 3G either. 4G was out of the question. So it was very hard and we had to hire an office uh, for the period of time we were there to make it work. I mean, there's a huge emphasis on the part of, I guess, all governments to ensure that we do have Wi-Fi so we can travel around, and I hope that will uh, address that. But I, I'm very, very interested as a psychologist myself. How? What, what are your tips for homeschooling? Because we are, as you say, going to see the rise of homeschooling, uh, and again, we may not see it declining. People may say they like this lifestyle, like you do. Yeah, I mean, it could be that this experience of educating at home puts a lot of people off forever. <laughs> because, yeah, that's true. You know, they, it's, it's not the ideal scenario. You know, you're given no notice. You're having to work full time in most cases at the same time. Um, you, you can't leave the house. You know, the, it, it's not the ideal scenario for doing home education. But for some families who maybe were thinking about it anyway, um, and as you say, it is massively on the rise. I don't exactly know what the numbers are now, but I think it's something like 35,000 families in the UK. Um, so, so I don't know why that number's in my head, but I think that's about right. So it's, it's, and it's grown hugely over the last few years. Um, and so for those that were thinking about it anyway, I think that this um, might have been the trigger for them to give it a try. 
Um, and I think for those parents whose kids really struggle um, with the mental health aspects of school, those that find school really tough on them, who are maybe picked on or bullied or who, who don't really thrive in big class environment, um, who just find the, the pressure of the exams and the, the, all of those things very overwhelming. And there are lots of those. There are lots of school refusers. There are lots of very bright kids who find um, school not stimulating enough. And there are lots of very creative kids who don't learn best sitting at a desk, um, you know, reiterating stuff. They learn best from doing um, and from experimenting and experiencing and having, making up games to try stuff themselves. Parents might notice those children thriving at home and it may give them pause uh, for thought about what to do next. I also think it's going to be very difficult for these semi-wild kids, having had six months out of the school system, to adapt back to school in September. I think that's gonna, the teachers are going to have a job on their hands. When things come back to normal, is you know, they will have a big job on their hands. But we spoke briefly about things coming back to normal. And I'm very interested in the whole concept of remote working. Um, is it something we need to treat as a massive change or is it work as normal, as usual in your experience, in your opinion? Do, do you need to make personal decisions uh, about how you'd like to handle remote working or do companies need to create home working, remote working standards for their employees? I think it is uh, very individual. I mean, it's one of the advantages of remote working that you can structure it much more to suit you. And this applies to the learning at home as well, of course. Um, but I think from the company's point of view, it's more cultural than structural. So, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges around remote working is trust. We, we live at a time when levels of trust are actually very low. If you're familiar with the Edelman Trust Barometer, you'll know that year after year for the last four or five years, the, the numbers globally for around trust in government and business and the media and even um, NGOs is really low. So you cannot operate a remote working culture without trust. Because what you end up doing is putting in all sorts of checks on people to make sure that they're doing the things that you can measure from a distance. So that ends up being people, I heard this, someone on a group that I run, a Facebook group that I run said that during this period of time when she is home with her child, she is also expected to be dialed in to the office eight hours a day. Now, th this is extraordinary. And, and to not take, pay any attention to her child during that time, which, of course, is impossible, right? So th this is clearly an organization that has zero trust for people. And one of the things that, that really shifted my thinking about this, I was reading, I used to run a lot of big change programs for organizations. And they were sort of semi-successful in the sense that at the time that we withdrew, change had happened. But when you went back six or nine or 12 months later, things had reverted. So on the, on the tick sheet about how happy everyone was with the program, yes, fantastic. But the change wasn't sustainable. And I could never quite understand why that was. And then I, I read a book about home education by a guy called John Holt, who was talking about trust and talking about human beings' innate um, ability and wiring for learning and for change. And he said, you know, people 
move house on their own. They initiate that. They make it happen. They start new jobs. They do further education in their adulthood. They take up a hobby and they dive into it and they learn all about it. They, they make all sorts of adjustments. They start a family. They take a job in another country. They learn another language. People are actually very good at change. Um, and they're very good at learning. They don't need to be monitored and controlled and measured at every turn. So why do they need it in the workplace? Or why do we have this sense that they need it? And, and I think that that is because we don't trust them. And when they're resistant, we put it down to some sort of cliche like, or oh, people don't like change or, well, people, if people aren't being watched all the time, they just watch TV all the time. When we know that that's not true for ourselves, I mean, the person saying that doesn't think if I were at home, I would watch TV. They think I've got stuff to do. My job is meaningful to me. I want to make a difference. I want to make an impact. I want to climb the ladder. I want to earn more money. Whatever it might be is their motivation. Why would they think that anybody else's motivation is less than theirs? You, you, you might find, I guess, that if a manager or a leader doesn't believe that they are creating a stimulating environment for their employees or, or stimulating jobs for their employees, uh, that that their employees might well not want to be doing the work, I suppose. So isn't that a sort of a broader call to say companies, leaders, you must ensure that you're creating meaningful work for your employees? Absolutely. I mean, it'll be, it's very interesting, I think, this period of time to see who are the people that are still pushing out the productivity from home, even if they have to do that late at night when their kids are asleep or first thing in the morning before they wake up. You know, who is it that's still driven um, to, to get stuff done? And, and are there organizations that are finding it really difficult um, you know, we, before we had the lockdown, it was very interesting. So we had the social distancing and a, a huge proportion of the population stayed home and they decided to work from home or if their company gave them permission, they worked from home. And then we also saw a bunch of other people who treated this like it was the summer holidays. And they basically said, listen, I don't have to go into the office, so I'm going to have a party. I'm going out for lunch. I'm going down the pub. I'm going to the Lake District. Let's just all, no one knows what we're supposed to be doing. No one can see us. Um, I'm on 80% salary anyway, so what difference does it make? We did see a percentage of people like that. And and I, I think that you can't blame the people. You know, I don't think that, I think that you have to, exactly as you say, the companies who had people like that have to look at themselves and say, are we not creating a, an environment here where the work is meaningful? Are we not creating an environment where people care about doing a good job? And I remember a few years ago, I worked on a change program with a logistics company, a, a delivery company. And we were having this conversation and, and the CEO said, well, you know, but I mean, the people that we're having the trouble with are the drivers. You can't expect drivers to, to have find it meaningful. And I said, well, what about Eddie Stobart? You know, the, the, there are companies where the drivers are passionate about the company that they work for. It's a cult, you know, yeah, yeah. and nothing to do with the nature of the work. It's the culture. That is so interesting. Um, I recently read, just to absolutely support your point, 
um, that they've done some research which shows that when you monitor drivers by the second, like certain large delivery companies that we all get deliveries from daily, um, those drivers are the ones when they're given the opportunity to skive off, take it. Um, because in the old days, drivers used to be able to stop at the warehouse, have a cup of tea with each other, have a nice chat and catch up, and then do their work. By monitoring people down to the second, you've taken away all the humanness, all the socializing from it. And maybe that's one of the problems we are having with organizations. This same organization, they had a, a problem in their warehouse uh, where just piles of stuff would be in a corner and no one really knew what was meant to be happening to it. It should have been delivered, obviously, but no one was taking responsibility. And the board had an idea. I was coaching the board at the time. They said, well, we need, obviously the systems aren't working. We need more, more systems. We need more process. We need more controls. And I said, you know, it seems to me that the more systems and process and control you put in place, the worse and worse this problem becomes. So maybe uh, the opposite, maybe let people think for themselves, because if there's no process for that stuff in the corner and process is all people know, then no one thinks to themselves, I wonder what all that stuff is in the corner. Whereas if the job is to do our very best to deliver all of this stuff to where it needs to go and that's my job to make sure it goes where it needs to go then someone's going to say what is all that stuff in the corner why is it just sitting there every time I come in here and they're going to wonder have a look you know so I think when when you exactly as you say when you allow the humanity to come in and you don't treat people like machines um then they they act like human beings, not necessarily straight away because they don't know what to do with all of this freedom. They often um, push back, right. but given yeah, yeah. a bit of space, they they love the humanity and they love the way they're being treated. Why do you think leaders struggle so much to give up command and control structures and to adopt the, the flatter networking structures, which we clearly know are, are better? Uh, you know, you've just described a number of flat structures. Why? Why can't leaders give it up? Um, ego. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that seems like such an obvious answer. Is that, is, that, is that what it is? Too male, too pale? I think, I mean, I think, <laughs> I, would, I mean, I think women struggle with it too. Um, mm. I, I think, um, but there is some ego in it. You know, we, the, why do people want to become leaders? You know, why? And, and there is some personal reward I mean there's the meaningfulness of it of course um and of course a lot of people that I work with when I ask them why they do what they do they have very meaningful reasons for doing it but also you you think of the 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 benefits you know I'm going to be respected I'm going to be admired I'm going to have a lot of influence when you start out in the workplace and you look up you know five levels ten levels however hierarchical your organization is you say to yourself They've got it made, those guys at the top. One day, I'm going to be that. And then when you get there, you think you are that. Um, and it's, it takes a wise and self-aware person to say to themselves, you know what, I'm exactly the same idiot as I was 20 years ago. I still don't know what I'm doing. I'm still slightly making it up as I go along. I'm surrounded by people who are much more intelligent or talented than me. My job is not going to be to have all the right answers. It can't be because, frankly, I don't know what the right answers are. My job's going to have to be to facilitate others to do their best work. And it, it's a, it, it means letting go of all of those childish ideas 
about that you had when you first embarked on your career yeah. and before yeah. um, all those childish ideas about what it was to be the boss. And, and who do you think should make the decision whether an employee becomes a remote worker? Is that should should, should companies say it's your decision, or should companies say we'll decide who gets to remote work or not? I think it's a combination. You know, I think it's a conversation. That that's where this humanity thing comes in. There are lots of reasons why people want to work at home. Um, that their their family situation, for instance. Um, I don't know if you can hear, but we've got these two dogs. Um, it's nice to be home with the dogs. Indeed. Um, and a lot of people feel like that about their pets. They'd rather be with their pets than their colleagues. So <laughs> it, it can be stuff like that. It can be um, health reasons. You know, for some people, it's difficult for them to work in an office and it's much easier for them to work and healthier for them in the home environment. So they can be very personal reasons. Um, caring responsibilities. Um, a community that we very rarely talk about in the workplace is middle-aged women uh, like myself, who often have young children. So they have caring responsibilities for their kids. They are going through menopause or perimenopause. So they're dealing with a lot of that. <laughs> um, and so if I'm a bit feisty, you'll know why. And but they also have, they also have um, aging parents and they need to care for those aging parents. Um, now, of course, some men are also doing that, but it, the, the load seems to fall um, disproportionately on women. And so for them to be able to work at home so they can nip over and check their mum is OK after lunch and then get back and maybe work a bit longer in the evening or catch up on stuff at 11 tonight when they when their children are in bed. You know, so, so there, there are some very personal reasons. Right. But also there are professional reasons. So cost of office space. You know, um, all, all of those overheads that you require when you when you get everyone coming into work, the environmental cost of massive offices and commuting and sitting in traffic jams, wasted productivity time when you're just sitting in a traffic jam for two hours in the morning and two hours at night or in a crowded commuter train. Um, so there are sort of environmental and financial uh, reasons like that. And then there's a productivity benefit. You know, some jobs require a bit of focus, a bit of quiet. They require you pacing up and down and going for a walk and thinking, what can we do about this intractable problem? The, the problem isn't best solved staring at a computer in a cubicle. Um, so, so there are some very good reasons. At the same time, there are also good reasons to have a group of people who are working together on something in the same room with each other, you know, at times um, for, for collaboration, for creativity, for connection. Um, and there are some roles that are very difficult to do outside. So what, one of my clients is pharmaceutical company. Um, their labs are, well, they still have their labs open where they're working on drugs for this virus um, and some other really critical drugs that they're working on. But, you know, uh, the, the client I spoke to this morning uh, mentioned that, you know, only two lab uh, scientists are going into a lab at a time at the moment. So it, those people really need to be there to do their best work. And I think that's the conversation. It's what works What works at this moment maybe might be different to what works at a different time in the cycle. Um, and it's a, it, that's true flexibility. That's true flexibility. So if we, if we were sort of frank about it, would you say that there are jobs like team jobs, certain team jobs, creative jobs, maybe uh, agency work, for example, where you really shouldn't be remote working? 
I wouldn't go as far as that. Right. I, I really think it's down for teams to 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 decide. Um, I worked with a company a few years ago that had a um, had a really good philosophy. It was um, the martini culture. So anytime, any place, anywhere is is what they said. Um, and um, and and when they worked that through about what that actually meant, it meant results only or output only working outcome only if you like um so we don't care where you work we don't care what hours you do we're not measuring hours we're not measuring how often you're in the office we don't we're not we don't care if you want to be in the cinema at two o'clock on a wednesday afternoon that's fine you're going to be measured on delivering the outputs that we all agreed were the outputs for this team or this part of the organization and of course, you can't just focus on your outputs and forget about everyone else's. You are, you know, that other people need you to hit their outputs, their deliverables. Um, but as long as you're, as long as you're hitting your outputs, um, do what you want. You know, um, because we're not paying you for your time, and we're not paying you for a bum on a seat. We're paying you for, to do the job that we hired you to do for our customers. Um, and my understanding is they're still doing that culture. And it was di- it was different, difficult at the beginning because you don't know, well, when is someone on holiday? <laughs> you know, um, you don't know if someone's if someone goes to a doctor appointment, are they still available for a phone call? Right. So there were some things like that to, to thrash out. But in the end, what re- what matters is are we delivering on the promise that we are making to our internal and external customers? It's very interesting. Blair, I I want to ask you then, if you've got uh, a team and the majority of the team would like to work non-remotely together in the office uh, and a small minority would like to work remotely, whose job is it to settle that? Is it the team leader, the team themselves? Is, Is there always a resolution? Because although this may not have been a huge problem because it happens so seldom. If remote working is going to become de rigueur, um, surely we might see these situations arising more frequently. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like any any discussion uh, in a team where there is a big, big difference of opinion and um, that is a pretty fundamental difference. So, um, so I think there are a number of options in that situation. I mean, if a company is really dedicated to remote working and to making that possible, then, you know, I think that they would want to encourage teams to find a solution where the people that wanted to work remotely could, right? Yeah. But if the, if the organization's saying, listen, you decide amongst yourselves, you know, it, it's up to individual teams and a team can't decide, then the decision is either down to the leader. I mean, I think, you know, whilst whilst I love collaboration and I love um, participation in, in these conversations, uh, trying to make decisions by committee is a disaster. So I think you have to decide, right, we're going to have a conversation about this thing, but who will be the final decision maker? Before we have the discussion, who makes the final call? And I would suggest that in any decision-making scenario, that is your process. So you say, right, before we start discussing it, whatever it is, who will decide? And sometimes the person that decides is the subject matter expert. I I will be the one that makes the final call because this is my area. Um, Sometimes it's the leader of the team. I will make the final call because you're my team. And if you can't, if, if there's a 
if there's a difference of opinion, someone has to decide it'll be me, right? So you decide that first, then you have the conversation. And in this scenario, we're talking about maybe the leader says, okay, I've heard what everyone has to say. Let's try this. And and they come up with it. And I mean, and and the final scenario is, if this isn't the right place for some people to be working, then they find a place that is more in line with with their culture. I I think- you know, companies need to, they aren't necessarily all things to all people. They, they are allowed to be defined in a certain way and for that not to be perfect for some people. And then they go off and find a place that is. And, and I guess this is more of a problem while we're changing from a work at office culture to a remote working culture. Um, that job descriptions might say, you know, that you will be expected to remote work. Um, so when the team come in to the role, uh, they'll know that it's a remote working job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that company will be known for that, for that thing. And if that's what you like, then you'll be looking for jobs in companies like that. There, there was um, at Zappos some years ago, which is an online uh, retailer, I think it's now owned by Amazon, yeah. but they decided to do um, complete flat, uh, non-hierarchical organization. I can't remember if they used holacracy or if it was some other form of, of non-hierarchy. But anyway, they decided to go completely teal. And they they would, they would wound up to it. it. It happened over, a, well, they planned it over a number of weeks and months, I think. But they basically said, as of next Monday... Uh, no one, there's no hierarchy. So anyone who wants to be part of that, come in on Monday and work out what your job is. And anyone who doesn't want to work in that way, that's great. And we will pay you very, very handsomely, um, you know, to, to not come in on Monday. Yes. And I think about half of the people decided to stay, but there are some very interesting articles written by, uh, the one I'm thinking of is written by one of the former managers who of course went in on Monday and she doesn't have a job because there are no managers because there's no hierarchy. And it was very unsettling at first for her to work out, well, how do I add value? What is my skill set? And what is the real value that I add? And, And she basically found herself a job. She found something that needed doing that she was really, really, um, experienced and talented to do, and that became her job. And I think that we might see much more of that kind of agility um, when companies become uh, a bit more open-minded to allowing people to solve some of these problems for themselves. Uh, you know, as, as we come towards the end, um, we're assuming that people mostly do like remote working or that there's a large number of people. But we are seeing a lot of people freaking out about working from home. Um, and in fact, our, our, our editor uh, here um, and myself were chatting the other day and saying, suddenly now that we are all forced to work at home, um, we, there's a much greater urge to go for walks and to get out of the house um, that those of us who worked at home before didn't feel when we were allowed to leave the house. Now that we're not allowed to, we suddenly want to go a lot more. So how do we deal with these, the perceived claustrophobia of working from home? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the funny thing is, I'm an extrovert, right? I don't know if you can tell, but I am. Um, <laughs> I, and, I guess. <laughs> so you would think that I would find working at home very difficult. I actually really, really like it. I find, because I'm so extroverted, I find being around a lot of people exhausting. 
I'm on all the time, you know. And and so when I do get home at the end of, you know, let's say I've been speaking at a conference or something and I've been with people all day, I get home, all I want to do is be quiet. Um, and I find the lack of opportunities to chit chat with people allows me to get a lot done because otherwise, you know, I can get into a couple of those on for hours. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think that there are advantages even for people who uh, who really, really value social interaction and, and need other people in order to um, do their best thinking. But I wouldn't go so far as to say uh, most people want remote working. I think what people want is a choice. I think they want flexibility. And the funny thing is about these, you know, one walk a day or whatever, we're not being given a choice. It's one walk or no walks. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas actually in a normal situation, I think people want choice. They want to be able to say, listen, Tomorrow I'm going to work from home because I've got this presentation to write and I don't need anyone else to do it and I don't need to be interrupted and I really just, I'd be much better off doing this from my back garden where I can be a bit creative and see some trees than sitting here uh, in this air-conditioned um, cubicle. So so I, I think that's the thing. And that way we do get, you know, work is, work is huge in terms of social interaction, in terms of our mental health and mental well-being, sense of community, um, people meet their partners at work, people make best friends at work. Um, and that's hard to do when you're all working from, from your own house. But there's, there's one other aspect, which is it's not just home or, or office. It can be co-working space. It can be the local cafe. You know, it can be right. a bunch of people getting together and saying, let's work at the same table at the cafe, but just on our own staff, you know. And, and I think some of this is also in the mix where people don't have to feel so disconnected and, and isolated. So you could have remote working hubs, I guess. Mm, exactly. Exactly. I think people could really innovate around this and, and, and find different ways of doing this to get their needs met. And then just to, to wrap up, um, what would be your top tips for HR people? We've got a lot of HR uh, listeners uh, here. What would your top tips to them be for preparing their organization for more remote working in a more structured way, perhaps? Well, I always think that before HR does anything out in the rest of the business, they should do it on themselves. Ah. So it's very difficult to, um, to know what it's like and how to lead that in other parts of the organization if you haven't tried it. So I would really encourage HR functions to to, to um, implement some remote working in their own teams, to see how that works, what are the problems, what are the things that they had not anticipated would be difficult, really be honest with themselves about what works and what doesn't. You know, we can be quite attached to philosophically really liking an idea and then experimenting with it ourselves, it not really working, but being so attached to the, philo the philosophy or the concept that we just brush that away and say, well, I didn't like it much, but I still think it's a really good idea. I felt really isolated, but I still think it'll be good for our business. You know, I felt that the teamwork deteriorated, but that's probably because we're not a very good team. No, all of this is really important data. And then you say, okay, let's, we'll pilot it on ourselves. We'll really analyze what worked and what didn't. We'll tweak it until we get something that starts working. And then we'll tell that story to the rest of the organization and, and see who, who wants to give it a go next. Um, and I really think that that's, that kind of iterative approach 
is the answer rather than rolling something out, massive program, and then realizing there's all sorts of unforeseen um, negatives to it and you're not prepared. You, you had no idea that this was going to be the case. So that would be that would be my number one tip. That is really illuminating. And Blair Palmer, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us so much about how to do successful remote working. Thank you. That was Max and Blair talking about what good remote working practices look like both during the outbreak and as we move forward into hopefully more flexible and productive ways of working. This issue is of course impacting us all right now so if you do have any thoughts on the conversation we'd really love to hear them so please do share in a comment. Please also remember to subscribe, like, rate and share on whatever podcast platform you're using to help us reach more people who may find our conversations useful. Thanks everyone and see you next time.